the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. EBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Simply the best portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. The struggles that you are going through now with the little things, the heartaches, the heartbreaks, the, the, the difficulties, the things that come up where you think they're, they're just expressions of utter failure. No, no, no. God is going to use that to accomplish his plan. Hey, think about that. Rain, failing a test, being turned down by the school you wanted to go to, and, and all God is in control of the whole thing. Do you feel like you're having a bad day? Does it seem as though everything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong today? Perhaps you're facing some pretty big challenges right now, or you just received some very sad news. Well, friend, God knows all about your situation, and he has a purpose for each one of those events. Hello and welcome to another edition of Verse by Verse. Our teacher, Steve Kreloff, has been leading us through a study of the biblical book of Esther. As the story unfolds bit by bit, we are seeing more and more of God's design and control over every facet of the story. And it's encouraging to us because we realize this is also the way that God works in our lives. Here's Pastor Steve to tell us more about how God's control works Throughout the book of Esther, and we said this over and over again, but it's worth saying again, we never hear God's name mentioned, never. But with the eye of faith, we see him working, don't we? We may not hear his name or read it, but we see him by the eye of faith working off stage, behind the scenes and the shadows to accomplish his plan to preserve Israel. That's the remarkable truth of this book. He that keeps Israel is working behind the scenes to keep Israel. And God knows all about what's going to happen because he's not asleep. It's not taking him unaware. So before Haman plots to destroy Israel, God's invisible hand moves in the course of human events. Now let's pick up chapter from chapter 2 at verse 19. This is where we left off last week, so we're just picking it up in our Bible study. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting in the king's, at the king's gate. Esther had not, made, had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she, uh, as she had done when under his care. Now, we left off last week that the king um, delights in Esther, and he has made her the queen over, over Persia, and he holds a banquet, a feast in her honor, Esther's feast. And basically what verse 19 is saying, that the other uh, women... They were they were turned down. You know, they they could, were no longer in uh, in a position to be possibly queen of Persia, and that's what happens. But what we want to notice really is verse twenty, because now we find that Mordecai is sitting at a place called the or verse nineteen. He's sitting at the king's gate. Now, if you don't understand 
as I didn't until I studied this, uh, a little bit about what the Bible means by the king's gate in ancient times, you might get the wrong impression. Mordecai is sitting there, and uh, it does not mean that he's trying to get into the palace, kind of like a pauper sitting outside waiting for someone to notice him. That's not the thought here. Nor is the thought that Mordecai is, uh, is lazy. He's just sitting around doing nothing. No, no, no. In the ancient Near East, the gate was the place where legal matters were settled. The gate was the courthouse of the ancient world. Most of the cities were walled, and everybody eventually had to pass through the gate of the city at, at one time. Or you didn't get, go out or into the city except you went through that gate. And so it was a very good place to hold court. Probably, and we're not told this specifically, but I think it makes sense, that through Esther's influence, Mordecai has been appointed as a, as a judge or a magistrate. He's, he's in politics now. He's at the king's gate because he belongs there. He's a judge. But even though she arranged, arranged for this, it doesn't mean that she let her Jewish identity be known. In fact, verse 20 uh, says that, that she did not let her identity be known, but she probably pulled some strings and said, I want this man in this position. Now, as I was reading this, I thought, this is really insignificant. I mean, it appears insignificant. You know, wh why would God tell us that the man is at the, the king's gate? I mean, who cares that he's at the king's gate? But you know, this is, this is where the whole story hinges upon this incident. The whole preservation of Israel and how God is going to use this hinges upon Mordecai being in the right place at the right time. It's the little things. The whole book hinges upon this Jew being at the gate and overhearing an assassination attempt on the king's life. Let's look at verses 21 through 23. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. In other words, they, they wanted to kill him. They didn't want to just put their hand on him. They wanted to kill him. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a, gallow, on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Quite frankly, assassination attempts on ancient kings was a common occurrence in Persia. Uh, we know this from, from secular historians that, that basically you could pick up, if they had a newspaper, you could pick it up every Thursday to find out who attempted to kill the king and what assassination attempt was foiled. It was, a, it was a common occurrence. This was not out of the ordinary. This was your normal government officials getting disturbed to the king and plotting to kill his life. In fact, kings spent most of their time or much of their time simply trying to find out who was going to try to kill them next. If you were living in those days, you would not want to be a Persian king. That's the last thing you'd want to be because uh, you, would, you would have your life threatened all the time. Well, this assassination attempt was overheard at this time by Mordecai because he's sitting at the gate and he must have heard them talking and whatever. And so he goes and he tells Esther. How he did it, I don't know. Must have sent word to her. And Esther told the king, and the plot was foiled, and it was written down in the royal chronicles. How little and insignificant this event seems. Just a common, really, quite frankly, ordinary, everyday assassination plot was overheard by 
an ordinary government official and written down in the royal records. Uh, by the way, this was commonly done, written down in the royal chronicles, commonly done as Xerxes was very concerned about loyalty. And so he would always write down in his official government records uh, whose name, uh, who was turned in, who was the one who, who told them about this and, and all the details of it. This is very common. This, this is something that happened all the time. In fact, we know from history that that is eventually how Xerxes died. He was assassinated, not through these two men who tried to do it, but later on in history, he was killed, as were most kings. Nothing out of the ordinary. Yet the preservation of God's people hinges upon this very incident. Someone has stated this, God swings big doors on little hinges. And that's true. This is the providence of God invisibly moving behind the scene to bring about his plan, using the ordinary events of life to fulfill his ultimate will. Now, I want you to know that this is not just something that took place in Bible times. This is the way God works today. This is the way he works in your life. I'm sure that if you thought about it enough, you could look back on your life and recall how the little things seemingly insignificant things, seemingly insignificant at the time, have proved to be the little hinges upon which God swings his big doors. Think about that in your life. Little decisions have, have charted the course of the rest of your life. Little things, insignificant events, minor decisions. Now, I'm going to tell you something that happened in my life that I have never said publicly, but uh, now I've got your attention. <laughs> but I'm going to say this publicly, a little thing in my life that God used in a great way. And I think it illustrates this point. When I was a senior in high school in Miami, I had to take a very important test for a college entrance. Either it was the ACT test or the SAT test. If you've gone through school, you understand it's names like that. I can never keep them straight. I did not drive a car at that time, though I was old enough to do that. I did not drive a car, but this, I had, there was a school bus that came out. And uh, in the early part of the senior year, I had to take this, this bus, uh, along with some others, to the high school. Everybody else was given the day off. Just the seniors had to go and, uh, and take this test. This test was very important. Basically... Uh, how you did on this test determined where you went to college. And from my perspective, I was not saved at the time. From my perspective, my whole life, you know, you've heard of your whole life passing before you. That's how I felt. I mean, all the grades and all the things you, you did up to this point really didn't matter much if you blew this test. Well, the day came, and uh, it was pouring rain. We get tropical rain here. They get tropical rains in Miami. And it was just teeming that day. Well, the bus driver assumed that there would be no seniors riding the bus that day because she figured that uh, all the seniors drove cars, not the senior. And so I stood out uh, under somewhat of shelter, but still getting drenched. And uh, she didn't pick us up at our regular time. Minutes went by. Quite a few minutes went by. I don't even recall now how much time went by, but I want you to know the test that I was to be taking was a time test, and I wasn't there. It really determined your entire future in terms of college and career, and here I was in the pouring rain waiting for a bus driver and a bus to pick me up. 
As time went on and more frustrated, I mean really frustrated, not just, oh well, there'll be tomorrow. No, I didn't think there would be a tomorrow at this point in my life. Eventually someone got through and made a phone call and the bus arrived. And by this time, I was so upset that quite frankly, I blew the exam. Now, I might have blown the exam anyway, I don't know, but I blew the exam. You know how you walk when your feet get drenched in water? You can f- hear them squish. I was squishing through the hallways. They said, look, just relax. We'll give you the full time to, to, uh, to take the test. And when I started, I was so upset, I put all the math answers in the wrong place. They weren't going to give me time to redo that. That was my own fault. And I remember growing more frustrated and more frustrated and more upset and more upset. Well, I absolutely, I probably got the lowest score in the whole test. Regardless of the fact that my high school grades were were good, I probably got the lowest test in the whole, uh, the the lowest score in the whole school. I I didn't ask too many. I was just embarrassed because if you ask someone, how did you do? Then they always turn around and say, how did you do? So I didn't ask too many people how they did. But if I wasn't at the, the lowest, I was close to it. And I applied to the University of of Florida because many of my friends were going there. And when you were in Miami, that was just the school to apply to. And uh, I was turned down. Just, you know, no second chance. You you blew it. I, I, I got like 100 points lower than what you had to get as the minimum to get in there. That's how bad I did. But in God's providence, I was accepted on academic probation at the University of South Florida. Academic probation. I remember I had to fly up with my, with my mom. We flew up here, and uh, she had just gotten her driver's license. She didn't know how to drive. <laughs> and uh, in the providence of God, we survived. And uh, she, she was 50 years old, and she got her driver's license, but she would do anything for her son. We flew up. She didn't like flying. I didn't like, in fact, I had never flown before. This was, this was it. This was the first time. She was driving. I think it was like uh, she was going like 70 miles an hour in a 40-mile zone. And I said a few times, Mom, I think you ought to slow down. Anyway, by God's grace, we survived. And the University of South Florida said, yes, we'll accept you on academic probation. Real boost to the old ego. Well, was this just a seemingly insignificant event? I'm not just telling you this story because I like telling stories about myself. No, no, this is very important. And it it illustrates God's providence because it was at USF that God had a young man waiting for me who took an interest in me and shared Christ with me. And I mean, did not stop sharing Christ with me, not in a tactless way. I mean, when I was insulting towards him and quite nasty to him, He just kept coming back for more. I thought, this guy is a glutton for punishment. I am obnoxious, and I don't know why he he just keeps coming back. God knew I needed somebody like that, and so he made sure I went to USF. It was at USF also, not only that I accepted Christ, but that I came in contact with another young man who said, I go to a little church in in Clearwater, Florida, and uh, I commute, and I'd like you to come home with me one weekend and, uh, and visit my church. That church is Lakeside. Now, it was at Lakeside that God put me in touch with some pastors who recommended that I attend Moody Bible Institute. I said, where should I go? They said, you ought to go to Moody. 
I didn't know what moody was. I thought it was a temperament. You know, I thought people are moody or just, you know, sad. I didn't know what moody was. God, in his providence, directed me to Moody. It was at Moody that I met Michelle, prepared for the ministry, and then through God's providence and direction, ended up back here at Lakeside. You see, in the providence of God, he used the pouring rain in Miami, a forgetful or or late bus driver, and my scholastic incompetence all together to accomplish his plan. Now, if someone stopped me then and said, do you realize this is all part of God's great plan for your life? I would have laughed. How could this possibly fit in to God's plan for my life? I wasn't even saved then. But God looked ahead. In fact, that's what providence means. It means he sees ahead. And he already had everything under control. And the struggles that you are going through now with the little things, the heartaches, the heartbreaks, the the, the difficulties, the things that come up where you think they're, they're just expressions of utter failure. No, no, no. God is going to use that to accomplish his plan. Hey, think about that. Rain, failing a test, being turned down by the school you wanted to go to. And, and all God is in control, the whole thing. And it only dawned on me years ago that, oh, that's what God was doing. Wanted me to end up at USF. And that's where he started a whole chain of events that led to my being in the ministry. That's what makes you see the Christian life so exciting. God uses the little things in life to to turn out for his glory. The mundane, simple things. You know, there are very few big things in life. I mean, I hope you realize that. Big things are, are getting married, having children, getting a new job, moving to a new home. You know, those are the big things. But most of life is made up of mundane, simple, ordinary, run-of-the-mill events. But that's what God uses. And that's why the Christian life is an adventure. Because God is not divorced from those situations. In fact, God, in his own sovereign plan, and I don't understand how he does it, but he's working it all out for his glory. So... That's how the, in the book of Esther, the attempt to, to kill the king was working. The whole providence of God in preserving Israel hinges upon Mordecai, a simple Jew, sitting at the king's gate, overhearing a very ordinary, common plot to, destro- to, to kill the king. Now let's look at the anger of Haman. Because beginning in chapter 3, we meet Haman, and he is the bad guy. He's the villain. Verse 1 says this, After these events, King Ahasuerus, or we know him as Xerxes, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established him in authority all over, over all the princes who were with him. A number of years have passed now since Esther has become queen. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 16, and just comparing chapter 3, verse 7, number of years have passed. This is not a matter of week or weeks or days, number of years. And Xerxes' main man in Persia now at this time is a man by the name of, of Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He just sounds evil, doesn't he? I mean, Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Who would name their son that? He, just, he named sounds bad. Even if you didn't know anything about him, it just, just sounds evil. I want you to understand that the term Agagite has caused uh, some scholars, in fact many scholars, to believe that Haman was a descendant of King Agag, who the, was in the Old Testament the Amalekite king, who the, uh, the King Saul was told to destroy all of the Amalekites, and he did not 
destroy them. And some believe that Haman is a direct descendant of this king and that God is going to accomplish his pur- purpose in, in wiping him out and, and using Mordecai uh, when, when Saul was disobedient to him. Uh, I don't think that's, that's the point here. I, I, don't, I don't think that is. In fact, modern uh, archaeology and scholarship has discovered that Agag was the name of a province in the Persian Empire. So probably Haman was, was simply one who was from the province of Agag, and that would make more sense. You know, we're a Semitic a former or descendant of a former Semitic king living 600 years before would show up in Persia is, uh, is, is not that probable. The most probable explanation is that he's just someone from the province of Agag. But the point is that Haman was big man on campus in Persia at this time, and he demanded absolute respect. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. The point is this. All the king's nobles at the gate bowed down to Haman. Everybody did. That is everybody except one person, and that was Mordecai. And the other men couldn't understand this. Why, why, Mordecai, will you not bow down to Haman? We're all bowing down to him. And Mordecai's response eventually came out that he was a Jew. Now, at first, this sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? Now, I'm a Jew. I don't bow down. I don't worship any man. I just worship God. It has led some to believe that, that Mordecai didn't bow down because he didn't want to worship a man. He was so concerned with the glory of God. In fact, about 100 B.C., 100 years before the Lord Jesus came into this world, some Jewish writers decided to come up with a prayer that they said expressed the heart of Mordecai. Now, the scriptures don't say this, but I want you to understand this is the thinking of the Jewish people. They had to figure out some way... Um, to get Mordecai out of this problem, or something like that. So they said, this is the prayer that Mordecai prayed. And Mordecai didn't pray this, they said this, to sort of justify his actions. You know all things, you know, Lord, that it was not because of insolence or arrogance or vanity that I did this, that I did not bow down before Haman. For I would have been quite willing to have kissed the soles of his feet for Israel's sake, but I did it in order that I might not put the glory of man above the glory of God. I say ridiculous, ridiculous. I say that Mordecai's attitude had absolutely nothing to do with God at all. Since when did Mordecai concern himself with the glory of God? If he was so concerned with the glory of God, why wasn't he back in the city of God, back in Jerusalem? He could have been back there. He should have been back there. The man never mentions God's name. He never mentions the temple. He never mentions the the city of Jerusalem. He never mentions the things that are precious to the Old Testament redeemed Jew. Now, Mordecai's not concerned about God at all. Then why didn't he bow down to Haman? I'll tell you why. Mordecai says it's because he's a Jew. I think he's right. But I don't think it has anything to do with his religious convictions for Judaism. No, I think it's his national pride. I think it's his national stubborn pride in being a Jew that says, I will not bow down to this pagan Gentile who he probably despised. I think that's, I think that's the answer. I think that's consistent with Mordecai's character. Stubbornness, pride, arrogance... 
But when Mordecai revealed he was a Jew, and I'm sure he said, look, I'm a Jew. But I think what he meant was that I'm not going to bow down to this pagan. Not every excuse we make for what we do is a good excuse. In the case of Mordecai, he really didn't have a good reason for refusing to bow to Haman. His stubbornness actually fed the flame of hatred that burned in Haman's heart toward the Jews. Yet, as we will see, God was able to preserve his people despite Mordecai's sin. And that's a comfort for all of us. While God certainly does not condone sin in our lives, it is good to know that even our dumbest mistakes will not overthrow his plans. We will not enjoy the consequences of our sin, but we can rest in the fact that our God is able to help us put our lives back in order and continue to serve him. We're glad that you were able to join us for Verse by Verse today. If you tuned in late to this broadcast, you can hear the entire program online at our website, versebyverseradio.org. Just click on the Listen Now button at the top of the page. You can also use our online archive of previous broadcasts to catch up on any of the programs that you may have missed in this series on Esther. A complete list of available programs is displayed when you click on the Audio Archive link. Adolf Hitler firmly believed that the Jewish people were responsible for nearly all the ills that his native Germany endured. In fact, he felt he would be doing the entire world a great service if he could exterminate every Jew in the world. It's a harrowing statement. But Hitler was not the first to feel that way concerning the Jews. More than 2,300 years before him... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.